Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. On today's podcast, we're going to be focusing on retail, on sales, on building a brand, and D2C. With me, I have Sach Kukadia, founder of Secret Sales, and we look forward to hearing his story, his background, and how he made it a success. Welcome, Sach. Thank you for having me. We'd like to start with a little bit about people's backgrounds, what they did before they got famous, so to speak. And you had a couple of businesses that you started before Secret Sales, um, Naughtiness Promotions, I love the name, and uh, London Express, which, um, you know, they kind of overlapped a little bit. They did. So, so maybe... Just walk us through those early days. You know, you graduated degree in you know textiles, and and you decided to start a couple of companies. Walk us through those early days. I think I need to take take one step further back, actually. So when I was mid-teens, I used to uh, host a show on a few pirate radio stations in Northwest London, and uh, during this process, I would have to pay the management of those stations twenty pounds per hour to host that show, and it's called a sub cost. Um, and it wasn't until probably about a year or a year and a half in that I decided to actually start up my own pipe radio station because I thought, well, what's the point of me paying out £60 per weekend when I could potentially receive an income on a similar level? And it, it didn't take us long to, to find someone to make a transmitter and then to set up a, a rig at the top of a council estate and we called it Hectic FM. Uh, we stole the frequency 105.6 FM. Um, and suddenly all of the DJs and MCs that were sort of my friends and, and colleagues on these other stations would come onto my station and start paying me a sub. And so, you know, during the years of perhaps 16 to 19, I was heavily involved every weekend trying to maintain uh, that, that as a business, uh, which for me was actually quite lucrative. Um, I then went to university in Manchester and I decided to not do the pirate radio station anymore. But because I had the links with all of the DJs and, and performers, it sort of, you know, segued me into organizing, uh, evening events and, and parties for the student community. And Manchester being, I think at the time, the largest student population in Europe, it was an incredible place to, to exploit. Uh, the opportunity. And so Nautilus Promotions really started with an event called Get Funky. And that was aimed at, um, you know, students and actually from Asian descent. There was a lot of um, uh, Indian, uh, Muslim, uh, Chinese uh, backgrounds, you know, from all over the world. And Get Funky was specifically you know, an, an, uh, an Asian orientated event. And then that soon bled out into uh, a number of other, uh, other evenings and, uh, and actually just various event and, and concert promotions. And actually, I think, I think Norton's promotions is still ongoing in Manchester. In the background, my father was one of the uh, major shareholders of Pepe Jean. So he was around in, in 1972 when, when the business in, uh, started up from Notting Hill. Uh, from a small uh, market stall in Portobello Road. And he was involved in, in, in the building of that brand and the sale of that brand in the early 90s. And post that, that uh, business, he started up an import and export company called London Express. And it was during those years where I worked underneath my father, learning about the rag trade, how to buy product, how to sell product, what to look out for, um, you know, how to make certain selections, how to negotiate. And 
my brother Nish, who's my co-founder of Secret Sales, was also involved in that business and operated out of the Brussels office. So there were two offices, one in London, one in Brussels. And he was more uh, in, in charge of pharmaceuticals and, uh, you know, delivering product into supermarkets and things like that. So that's where, really where my passion for working in the fashion industry came from. And, and it, you know, secret sales boomed off the back of that, actually. So we left university um, 2005. I started secret sales and working on the project within six months. And it, it was super clear for Nish and I in terms of why we wanted to start secret, secret sales, because we had... Uh, a business uh, situation with Pepe in the early 90s, my father used to explain to me that there was a recession. I was too young to really appreciate this. But there was a recession in the early 90s and that meant that Pepe had a bit of a balance sheet problem in terms of its stock and it wasn't being managed correctly. And suddenly I came across a flash sale business in France that was you know, really solving the problem. It was helping brands clear inventory, but in a really discreet way and in a way that protected the brand's integrity. And suddenly, you know, my skills that I'd learned from working underneath my father and my brother's skills that he'd learned, um, also post working with my father, working with a, me- a marketing company, gave us all the knowledge and the expertise to start Secret Sales in 2007. That's great background and actually it's funny I didn't know that about Pepe Jeans being in your family I right. remember when that was like the jeans to have yeah um, and it makes sense how that would teach you uh, the necessary skills for a secret sales maybe this is a good chance to talk a little bit about brands like and how brands think how brands think about their brand equity uh, you know you hear rumors about some luxury brands burning their clothes because they can't get rid of them and they'd rather do that than than uh, sell them at a discount and lose their, their brand identity and, and equity how is it that luxury brands differentiate themselves in terms of how they deal with inventory than, let's say, medium range and, and lower range? And how did you crack that early conversations um, with, with brands in, in order to provide your inventory for secret sales? So luxury brands do an incredible job uh, protecting their positioning within the market uh, by just never going on sale. So when you see Louis Vuitton, when you see Chanel, when you see you know, other brands that fit within that same adjacency, you will never, ever, ever see those brands discount their products. And what they're catering for is a lifestyle. People aspire to wear, you know, those shoes or or to have that bag. And a lot of the time, these items remain continuous season after season. So they're not really changing in terms of design. And they've become so sought after that actually damaging their reputation or their integrity by by discounting causes far more harm than actually burning the product. Now, I know that there's a big uh, recent uproar uh, with a certain brand that was burning about £30 million worth of product, given that there's a huge issue with homelessness and and, and various other things. And I actually had a meeting with that brand in in the past few months, and they've taken a complete U-turn on uh, on inventory because they realize that actually whilst they're burning their product because they're trying to maintain uh, or protect their integrity they're actually jeopardizing and compromising their position by burning it because you know nowadays with the way in which the world looks at sustainability and trying to solve a lot of the issues that humanity faces they've taken a view to now actually discount their products but do it in a very careful way now the reason why secret sales benefited from all, from uh, working with brands like this is because we host short flash sales that last for days rather than weeks and we have a private members club so you have to sign up to gain access but it means that 
there is a wall garden. So, you know, we're not discounting our products to the wider market. We're not um, shouting about these sales. And in fact, it's to a very discreet audience who are all very affluent and it's for a short time limited campaign, which basically means that we're doing everything we can to protect them. So, you know, the, these luxury brands, when I started the business back in 07, I can assure you we're not interested in working with secret sales at all. Um, it took us a long, long time to, you know, keep knocking on the door. And, that, and I think that's one thing that we were quite good at is not accepting no as an answer. And instead, I always took the view that this is just a not right now situation. And, and you know, as, as time is now told, we were absolutely right. All of these big brands that, you know, outside of a few without naming who they are, are now working with secret sales on a regular basis because they understand that actually managing inventory and doing it in the correct manner is is better suited and, and part of a more commercial strategy ongoing than, than trying to, you know, bury product or, or burn it. But I mean, a lot's changed since then. I mean, it's, you know, it's been almost a, a decade. And one of the things that, you know, surfaced since then is our brands like Supreme and, and these brands that sort of do drops and, and they sell out with, and they produce enough just to sell out. And, and those kinds of businesses, if taking off, would, would pretty much eliminate the need for uh, inventory discounting. So how do you see that evolving and affecting secret sales in, in the future if, if you know, that's the, the trend. Well, this actually shifted back when Lehman's Brothers collapsed in 2008. So you had a sudden shift in the way in which brands were producing products. So, you know, before that point, a lot of businesses would produce excess uh, stock knowing that they could replenish orders and they would have it on the ground. So if, if a certain department store sold through quite well, they could very quickly deliver another round. Since 2008, brands have been super protective and, they, and they've been producing much less. But the issue with this is you can't actually grow your business when you're being super prudent. So, you know, most businesses will have a 12-week turnaround in terms of their production. And it means that if they're only producing what they think they can sell, then there is no real view or planning for, for growth. Instead, there's been a shift in uh, how consumers are shopping now. So when you take outlet villages and you take certain locations like Bista, uh, or Cheshire Oaks and, and now, you know, across Italy, you have numerous outlet villages where these big luxury brands are making for outlet. So rather than produce inventory that they're going to sell at full price, they're producing inventory that can, that can be sold at a discount. And they're doing that by make, manufacturing the product in cheaper factories and cheaper locations with lower grade materials, but with the same margins. And by doing it in that capacity, they understand that, that there's a demand shift in that customers nowadays are, are smart, they're savvy. And I think the recession uh, in 2008 has really, and, and ongoing, has conditioned customers into behaving a certain way. So you had a luxury customer that would feel really proud about going out uh, into town and buying a £1,400 handbag and boasting about how much they spent on that handbag. And there has been a fundamental shift in that within the last 10 years, that same customer is still going out and wanting to buy that new handbag, but she is now boasting about how much she saved. And so the outlet villages is really where businesses are now focusing their attention. And interestingly, this is where Secret Sales is now trying to make uh, headway and, and new uh, developments, because where we feel the opportunity exists is by creating an online outlet village, an online Vista village where customers can source 
product year in, year out um, and have it delivered to them next day. And we're working with, with these brands on, uh, on a marketplace. So we've, we've evolved from just being flash sales to having flash sales and now permanent shopping shops where brands are delivering directly to customers. And we are now also selling exactly the same type of product that you would see at Bista Village. Hmm. So if we, if we go back to the, the beginning, kind of we, we went off track and, you know, from the foundation of the company, we we plotted a line to today and we said there was three points. I'm just picking three randomly, but three points that were critical inflection points for the company in you know 2020 hindsight. What would those points be? In terms of success? Anything. Like it could be whether it was when your HR broke, whether you realized you had to have a different team structure, whether it was key customer. Anything that you remember, like when you and your brother are just having drinks and you're like, you remember the time when that happened? Oh my God, I can't believe we pulled that off. Or Right. So the one that really stands out is I think we were trading about a year and a half into the business and we were trying to understand how we could make this business really grow and, and become effective. Interestingly, prior to this point, I'd been going to Italy and I'd been buying you know, designer brands like Armani and Versace and, you know, a handful of others from wholesalers because we we needed to prove the concept and brands weren't going to work with us directly without knowing that we could deliver on, on, on a certain service. And it wasn't until my father gave me access to a container's worth of Adidas original trainers. Now, the reason why there was a a almost a complete shift in in, in offering here was because when I was buying the inventory from Italy, I was buying narrow, I was buying shallow, and I was also buying in ratios that made sense to my budget. For the first time, I had about 100 shoes in terms of width, I had about 2,000 units in total, so there was a lot of quantity available, and the brand you know, was, was of recognition, uh, and the products actually looked great. And suddenly, on this one campaign, we went from you know doing about you know sub 100 units they're suddenly selling about 1500 units within four days um, and we analyzed this and I remember thinking to myself you know how has this happened but we came to the conclusion that there is a formula to how you can make consumers shop and there is um, an urgency that you can create by by you know packing this proposition up into in a certain way. So, you know, what we found was by having a really, really nice selection, by having the depth, by having a brand that's that's recognized, and by having a discount message that is of a certain percent, you can create an impulsive purchase, an emotional purchase that just literally turned the business overnight into what we saw was a, su- a success. And, and actually, from that point onwards in 2008 to even now in 2019, I still train my buyers on this mantra of what they need to look out for when doing a deal. Uh, and, and you know, it came to my attention that actually there's other businesses like TK Maxx that actually adopt a, a quite a similar um, uh, training level in terms of what they expect to see. And so, you know, there is definitely th- th- this turning point that, uh, that made sense. There was uh, another point in time when we took investment. Our first round of funding came from a German group, uh, which was £4 million from a company called Brands for Friends. And we were trading as a break-even business. We were probably only around 20 people within the team. And suddenly they wanted us to spend £2 million on marketing and, and grow exponentially, which meant, you know, generating sales uh, 
that were five times increase. They wanted us to hire 50 people within the space of six months. They expected within that period to also move offices from Park Royal to Notting Hill and equally outsource what was an internal warehouse operation to a third-party logistics partner. And they caveated our second two million of the four million pound deal on the performance of certain KPIs. And so we needed to hit all of these things and spend that money and do all of these things effectively to get that, that, that second piece of cash. Um, and so I remember thinking to myself and speaking to my brother about this being like totally crazy. Like, how can you do this? We're, we're, we don't even know how to deploy £30,000 a month on marketing. And here they are wanting us to, to deploy £2 million in six months. Um, but actually, we, we took their advice. We were really proactive. So we turned the team from 20 to 75 within the space of four and a half months. And that meant, you know, recruiting aggressively. We did move our offices. Uh, it, it meant, you know, outsourcing our warehouse and setting that up from fresh with a, with a th- 3PL. And actually spending about a million pounds on marketing within six months that suddenly generated a huge shift in the, the, the registrations that we saw. And that naturally has an impact on our, on our revenue. And so not only did we meet, meet all of these KPIs, but we actually surpassed them. And we got that second two million in. And that was an amazing experience for me. And the third point, I guess, which was quite an inflection was funnily enough, about six months later, we had eBay wanting to acquire our partner who had invested in us and also in secret sales. And naturally, we weren't ready to sell the business because we had just, you know, raised this money and we hadn't crystallized the value. And so we allowed brands of friends without creating any conflict to be bought by, by eBay, to which they spent $200 million. And they also acquired the shares that Brands Defense held within Secret Sales. So we ended up, we ended the year with eBay as a partner rather than having the German group. And suddenly we realized quite quickly that eBay wasn't going to support, uh, Secret Sales financially. And we only had about four to f- or five months worth of runway. So we had to very quickly, you know, turn our business from a super high growth, exponential growth business to a break-even business again. So all of the highs that we made, all of these amazing things that we made, Nish and I had to renegotiate all of the contracts. We had to restructure our teams. We had to do a whole heap of stuff to try and bring our cost base down so that we can maintain a certain runway to allow ourselves to raise some more money. And we were fortunate enough to do that um, at the start of 2011. I mean, those are actually two very interesting decisions. And the way you've told them, actually, as I was listening to you, you share them, had different ans- different uh, conclusions than I expected. Like I expected that when you were sharing me the, the story about the, the tranched investment, um, that that was going to have a negative ending. It turned out to be positive. And inversely, the one with eBay, I, I thought was going to be something you guys drove and was going to be a positive, but it turned out to be negative. And I guess that brings up a question that many founders sometimes uh, have when they take money from an investor who's got strong opinions, which is how do you discern the difference between an investor who has your best interests in mind who has the experience and authority to be able to make a recommendation as strong as the one that you got and had to be the right call and maybe even at the risk of pissing off the founders for having structured the deal in that way versus those that you know bring in maybe trite and and overused feedback and and um ideas which are actually diametrically opposed to what you want to do but then you just need to take the money how do you how do you manage that? How did you know that that was going to go the way it did um, halfway through and, and and move from a point of resentment to a point of uh, elation? Walk us through that. So 
the first round of funding uh, from the German group, they were doing the same thing as us and they had accelerated growth in their second year to 80 million euros. And so they had this blueprint to scale. And so, you know, them investing in us, we had term sheets from uh, four other VCs, UK based, uh, similar terms, um, but we definitely decided to go with, with this German group because they had proven that they could do this. And, you know, there was leverage within, you know, the brand portfolio and their customer base, and it just made a whole heap of sense. Um, when eBay joined uh, as our partner at the end of 2010, uh, I must admit, I thought I was super excited because to have a behemoth like eBay on, on our cap table, I thought, you know, the world is, is for, for the taking, um, given that they have a huge database and they've got access to all these things. And But you, we realized quite quickly they weren't going to help us. And, you know, I wasn't in a position actually to decide at that point who the partner should be. And I think in hindsight, you know, would I have been able to make it a, a, a different decision? I'm not sure if I would have done because it wasn't necessarily my choice. I wasn't going to scupper the deal that they were going to do with Brands of Friends. And equally, you know, what I was told at the time isn't what, what was necessarily delivered in, or, or executed on their side. So, you know, I went through the motions after eBay raising money from a syndicate of VCs, UK and from in Europe, who stayed with me for the next seven years, all from varying backgrounds, but mainly tech. And in that position as well, you know, my back was up against the wall and I didn't have a huge amount of negotiating power in that we needed money. We had a really good opportunity that it was still an exciting proposition and people were interested in the space. But I had to take money from people that were offering me money rather than making a selection over who was going to give me that cash. And, you know, I don't think we made a bad mistake because the investors that joined us were, were all great in their own right. But they were, you know, everyone has an opinion and everything was, was done at board level. And, you know, that's fine. And I have to admit, you know, there were moments where things became quite painful. Um, and I'll give you an example of, of that pain. So we we put together a plan back in 2015 that was maintaining profitability versus growth between 2011 and 12 and 2015 we were growing at 70 to 100 percent year on year we were accelerating all of our kpis everything was headed in the right direction you know come 2015 we were about a 15 million pound turnover business and everything was great um and my brother and i presented to the board a plan to slow the growth down but to increase profitability so that we could turn this business into a business that was actually generating cash instead of having to always raise money um, and you know constantly burn cash and the view of the board was well the valuation of the business will be a multiple of net sales and not a multiple of EBITDA and, and you know maybe at the time they, they were right. The challenge however was that when we presented this to the board they came back and said actually, can you go away and make another plan um, that shows a little bit less profit and a little bit more growth? So we did that. We presented it the week after and they were like, I don't think we can sign this off. Can you go back and make another plan that's got less profitability and again, more growth? And at this point, I'm pulling my hair out and I'm like, you know, this is just, when does this end? Um, so we, we then went back and produced the same plan that we've been delivering for the past three years, which is high cash burn, Spend, 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 higher, 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 grow, 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 um, and deliver, you know, KPIs that look good externally, but actually internally 
you know, it doesn't make for good business. And we, we then delivered them a plan that was like, again, 70% growth uh, and not showing any profit. And the investors were like, yes, that's the one we want to see. And the next day, my CFO handed in his resignation. He was like, I can't deal with this uh, because this is not what I think the business needs. And, and me and my brother were also at that point of just frustration, but we couldn't do anything about it. Um, so, you know, interestingly, I now have, a, have an angel on board uh, who is my only business partner and the only thing he cares about is profitability and it's a huge again change to what I was previously experiencing which was you know all about you know trying to make the business look good aesthetically versus trying to make the good you know it's, it's vanity metrics right take away the ego and look at things that matter rather than look at things that are fundamentally not really going to make the business survive long term mm. how would you describe secret sales today would you describe it as a business that if you started today would would not go through venture financing would you describe it as a retail brand or how would you describe it and how would you fundraise for it today with what you know so we were always a retail business you know my company is a b2b to c so the first customer of secret sales is actually the brand and the second customer is the consumer that i don't think will change. If I was to start the business again now, I would probably focus on trying to deliver what we're doing now, which is a marketplace platform that is, you know, building a network of almost a far fetch for outlets. That's essentially what we're trying to execute on. So I think there would be a change in terms of what we're, what we would do had we uh, uh, started the business now. Um, and how we would sell the business into VC would probably be quite similar to how we, how we always did it because the way I, I, I look at raising cash is, you know, you need to have a business that is, is headed in the right direction, that has KPIs that make sense. No one is going to invest in a company that is um, trading, you know, downwardly or, uh, you know, isn't disrupting a certain uh, industry. It needs to be exciting. And it needs to be ahead of its time. And you know, we feel like we are, the, and we know we are the only company in the UK to be doing what we're trying to do right now. So we feel like we are innovating. We feel like we are disrupting. And I think that, you know, raising money from, from VCs is much harder than it was when we were raising money between 2008 to 2018 and, uh, uh, and even. You know, things have changed in the market. I think that generally speaking, where it was big V, small C, it's now very small V, big C. And by that, I mean less punts are, are being taken by investors, at least from what I see. And, you know, there is a lot of, um, there's still a lot of appetite, but there is a lot more scrutiny that goes into into uh, the, the, the due diligence and the, the actual scrutiny of that business. So um, I think Secret Sales is, is in a position where we don't want to raise a lot of money and, um, you know, I'm more interested in, in, in a slower growing, more sustainable, higher profit business than I am in the vanity metrics of a 70% year on year growth with all the wonderful things that we were doing. I mean, we still advertise on TV. We still do some really nice above the line marketing and, and things internally. We have a really good culture, but we want to do things that actually, uh, make sense. You know, I want the business to be around in 20 years. And this is why I actually bought the company back from the private equity company that I sold it to in 2017 was because I want secret sales to be a household name. I want it to be around within, you know, the next 20 years, 30 years. I don't want it to be stripped of its assets. And then suddenly, 
um, you know, or, or for someone to not really look after uh, the business the way that I feel it needs looking after. Well, I, you touch on a, a subject that I want to cover a little later, which is the acquisition that you had and, and then the reacquisition by you guys um, in 2018. Before we do that, uh, you were talking about sustainable growth. And one of, there was an article recently about how 50% of some companies' budgets go straight to Facebook mm-hmm. or Google through a cost of acquisition and, you know, and ads and in all the different platforms. If you, if you had advice for anybody trying to build a brand today, uh, trying to get presence out there with the cost that ch- these kinds of channels have, what would your top three tips be about how to build that brand and how not to overspend and what do you see current D2C brands getting wrong? There are a bunch of innovative ways to access customers nowadays. Social media and the platforms that exist weren't around when I started Secret Sales. And I have the privilege of understanding or at least knowing some of the founders of other like-minded businesses that have totally exploited platforms like Instagram and made a business by not spending a huge amount of money. And, you know, if you're building a brand within the fashion space, a lot of it is down to positioning. You have to make your brand sought after. You have to, it has to be seen on the right people and it has to, you've got to create a sense of, of coolness, right? And you do that by, by making sure that your product is seen in the right stores or being worn by the right celebrity. And a lot of that, just you know is is perhaps product placement so giving out free products making sure that pr companies or or you are 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 giving out free items which is a low cost to you but actually once it's seen on someone uh you know a lot of these influencers nowadays work by just receiving items which were never planned they receive something in the post and suddenly they're like hey i've just got this in the post and they start to wrap up a story um on facebook and or instagram and even Snapchat in some cases, which, you know, these guys have built uh, some incredible following. So, you know, I look at how people used to consume media back back when I grew up and how, how millennials particularly are now consuming media now. People aren't reading magazines in the same way. They're just not. And instead, they're looking at Instagram and they're being influenced by these Instagram celebrities, right? These people are just day-to-day people like all of us who have, you know, through their own tenacity and styling, built a following who people are now going to as way of of recognition. And so I have friends of mine that fall into this and, and you know, I can assure you that they are, they're, you know, incredible at what they do, but all of us could be doing that. Uh, and I'm not saying be an influencer. I am saying, you know, perhaps exploit the opportunities that exist that are in front of us you don't have to go and spend like thousands thousands of pounds on instagram ads uh, or on facebook ads i think that there are more intelligent ways uh, where you can potentially exploit by you know dishing out free things the other thing i would probably do is work with or at least explore partnership opportunities whereby you have a similar non-competing business that has you know, a like-minded audience where you can cross-pollinate each other's customer bases and really try to uh, develop, um, you know, an audience through through what would be a structure that probably doesn't cost much at all. And 
when you look at companies like Boohoo, for example, the reason why they're working so well is because they've done exactly that. They are cross-pollinating their product and co-branding their product with with capsule ranges that are then promoted and sponsored by big artists and you know they could be singers they could be whoever they are footballers and because these footballers and and and, and guys have millions and millions of followers boohoo already have access to all of those customer base and they're marketing really intelligently and so you know rather than pay the millions of pounds to access those customers through ppc or through google or through instagram they're spending much less by just you know giving someone the face of that capsule range and allowing that cross pollination to happen so i think that's you know that's just one example of a partnership opportunity that i think that could help and just to add some numbers to this because i think part of it is is great to have your expertise on uh, what these numbers should look like. What percentage of a budget do you think should go to um, cross-pollination efforts or, for example, influencer-free goods, you know, vis-a-vis a traditional spend marketing? You know, the, I, I, don't, I don't even know what a traditional spend marketing is nowadays, given that we at Secret Sales spend 60% of our spend probably on above the line, which for a lot of businesses is the opposite. Most businesses probably spend 60, 70% on digital and then, you know, a, a much smaller percentage above the line. Um, when it comes to, to, you know, these digital channels, and I think with any marketing campaign, I think what's important is less about, you know, are you going to spend X amount on Instagram and what is the right amount? It's more about testing what channels are working for you and what are delivering in terms of CAC, in terms of KPIs. You've got to look at the cohort analysis. You've got to look at the lifetime value of those customers and essentially build an attribution model and work through that process of understanding where to spend. Now, you know, if I was delivering a much higher lifetime value from customers through PPC, I can assure you that I would put all of my money into PPC. The reason why we don't is because, honestly, we're seeing in certain areas, you know, better performance, better costs, and a much faster rate of, of delivery in, in, you know, areas like TV, uh, you know, and actually Instagram is a really interesting one because I've only just started really spending money on Instagram and, um, it seems to be really quite effective, but it's also so content driven, right? So you have to get that right and it requires a test and it requires a bit of patience and understanding that. So for me, it's less about balance. It's less about spending what people expect you to spend. I think you've got to do what's right for your business. And your business, you might be doing something that's so different to anyone else in the world. So don't copy them, right? You've got to, you've got to, you know, write your own playbook, and you've got to be doing things that make sense for you. So, if you were an investor investing in a business similar to Secret Sales or perhaps just a, a regular D 2 C retail brand, what what kind of expectations would you have from a margin point of view, for example? taking all these things into consideration. So if I was a business that was producing inventory and it was my own brand, I would expect high margins of like plus 50%, 50 to 65%. On the other hand, if you're a business that is selling other people's brands, I would expect, you know, a business to have somewhere in the region of 30 to 45%. And, you know, in some cases, businesses make much less, but also need to have a uh, an OPEX and a cost structure that is in line with that. Now, the challenge with having lower margin is you need to sell a lot more to make the same amount of money. Um, if I was an investor, I would be looking at, at, at businesses that were thinking about, you know, how, you know, wh- where the industry is headed. I think technology is 
impacting how consumers are shopping uh, at a faster rate than brands can actually compete with. So there's a whole wave of new things that are coming into our lives, whether it's virtual reality, whether it's the way in which smartphones use it, whether it's, you know, in fact, people speaking through uh, screenless phones and just using, you know, uh, earphones or whatever it may be. There's just, there's so many things that are coming into play that will fundamentally shift how customers are shopping. And so what I would probably try to do is look at companies who are tackling those issues and or, you know, working uh, with with technologies or innovations that are, are game-changing. There's nothing wrong with, with taking someone else's idea and just making it better. And actually, a lot of businesses are really good at and successful by doing that. And some investors will make a lot of money by, you know, investing in the number two in the market, knowing that there's enough space for three or four of those companies uh, within that within that industry. But I would always take a view of, of you know, doing something that's exciting do, and, and backing a management team rather than just backing an idea. I think it's, a, it's about execution and it's about making sure that uh, that I believed in, in the individuals that are trying to deliver on that vision. Mm. So the business is had a long journey to date. And one of the critical parts of that journey, which you mentioned earlier, was getting acquired. But then, in a twist of, of fate, you bought it back almost like a, a year to two years later. Walk us through what happened there and what drove those two decisions. So we were encouraged at board level to explore an exit process, given that we had a bunch of investors, a couple of whom were nine years in on a 10-year fund. So in terms of um, you know, finding liquidity for their investment. Most VCs will probably want, you know, out of any company within three to five years. And they had already been with us at this point for about six. So it was less about performance and it was more about just formality. And so we were almost, you know, it was a vote. It, if I can be honest, it wasn't something that I wanted to do, but, um, you know, I didn't have a controlling stake in the business anymore. And the business then entered a process at the start of 2016. And actually, the momentum built really fast. We had a lot of inbound interest. We had a lot of people that were bidding for the business. <laughs> what we didn't really foresee is people in, in the UK voting for, for Brexit. And uh, when that happened, <laughs> everything um, sort of, you know, broke down. And we had a bunch of people that had made formal bids all pull out because they were European investors and were not interested in, in, in investing in this, in the UK or in this space until the dust had settled. And, you know, um, there was conversations at board level where I tried to encourage everyone to, to postpone this process for another year and let things die down. Uh, but it was a decision that, that, uh, that we continued in this process. And so we ended up, selling the business at the start of 2017 to a private equity company um, who had a similar business within their portfolio and felt that secret sales would you know, support that, that existing business strategically. And it actually made a lot of sense. Now, what was uh, quite frustrating for secret sales and for me particularly was that we were in, in, in a business that still had a lot of opportunity um, and through various, you know, decisions that were more macro and in some cases nothing to do with us, it meant that secret sales couldn't become a part of 
this uh, this other business um, in the way that we expected it to because of its own uh, challenges. And I think there was like a, a like a technical update that was due to take place, and and it wasn't particularly successful. So it basically meant that they needed to fix the baby rather than try to grow uh, using secret sales as, as the supporter. Um, and it meant you know it left the business wide open to be acquired again, uh, and they needed to spin it out. And, you know, the buyback option wasn't really something I'd considered at first. But then, you know, through a matter of, I guess you would just call it tenacity and, and you know, not wanting to, to let the business go to the wrong hands, I decided to to find a way to buy it back. And so we ended up completing that, that management buyout at the start of 2018, uh, around March time. And it's, you know, since then, we've had the opportunity to really focus on delivering and executing what we believe is where the value is to be created for secret sales. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing when you grow a business from inception through to the point where you sell it. You know, I, I, I'm not sure how, uh, everyone feels about this, but for me, it was quite an emotional thing. And I was fine had secret sales been supported and, you know, been driven in the right direction and it was, you know, growing uh, as it should be, then everything I would have left it be and I would have continued and perhaps focused on, on a new opportunity. But knowing that there wasn't the support and knowing that, you know, things weren't going well for the business internally uh, after the, the sale meant that uh, buying it back was, again, a very emotional decision for me. It, it wasn't very rational. Um, in that respect, but I'm very, very glad I did. Uh, you know, we, we feel like now that, you know, the business is almost a startup, uh, is, is how we're treating it and how we're executing day to day, uh, projects is exactly how I did 11 years ago. And, you know, we have a slightly smaller team, but still sizable. We're not necessarily growing at a, at a, at a high rate, but we are literally focusing on the things that matter within the business. And, you know, it's really refreshing and actually quite nice to know that, you know, we have what is essentially a second bite of the apple and, you know, really grateful that the, the world and, um, you know, fate has a way of, of making things happen. And this is actually something that I believe in, you know, wholly is that if you want something enough and you really believe in it, you know, the world will make it happen. And, you know, other people will call things luck and doors, you know, certain doors will open because of luck. But actually, I don't believe that, that, that luck exists. I think luck is a byproduct of your energy and your, your tenacity and your, you know, the, the reverberations that you create. If you want something enough in this world, the world will give it to you. You just need to keep fighting for it. That's great advice, Asaj. And, um, and maybe I can ask you the moment during that entire journey of secret sales where you really needed to remind yourself of that, the lowest of the lowest point where that philosophy, you know, is what got you through it because it was just painful. I wasn't willing to, to give up. You know, there were differences of opinion between me and my brother. And, you know, there are obviously lots of opportunities that get presented to you, um, whether it's in the same industry or elsewhere. And so, you know, having an internal discussion about whether we should buy this back or not wasn't a straightforward decision. But I would have bought this back even had my brother said no, because I wasn't prepared to to let everything that I'd done for the past decade 
um, you know, go into the wrong hands or as I said, for the business to just fail generally. So, you know, I, I think I'm quite a tenacious character. I'm quite thick skinned. I'm, I'm, I don't like failing and I don't like someone telling me that I can't, I can't do something. And I'm not sure whether I was taught that or whether I was born like that. My father is very similar in that respect. And, you know, he taught me a bunch of things when I grew up. One of those things was, you should always start a business. Not that there's anything wrong with working for anyone else, but my father, in fact, my whole family are entrepreneurs. Everyone has their own business. And it's, 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 I think it's actually, a, again, a, a byproduct of being an immigrant. So my parents are immigrants from Kenya. And, you know, my ancestry is from India, but they came here with nothing and had to fight their way to, to make things happen and actually getting a job from being from Indian descent back in, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, things weren't that easy for, for immigrants, right? So the only thing you could do is start your own business. And actually for, for my family and for a lot of my family friends and, and uncles and aunts, they all had to do the same thing. And, you know, off the back of that, I was, you know, also taught start a business. The other thing that I was, uh, you know, that was ingrained in me from a young age from my father was that I should work with my family because money changes people. It can, it can, uh, make people greedy. Um, and actually, you know, in some cases, it can change your view on things. And my father had a very strong view that, you know, the fact your family are the only people that will really have your back when when things are good or bad. And he was really right. And I, and I, I think for me, the reason why my situation has been somewhat of a success, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of down in all of this. And you know, it's, it's the, your ability to pick yourself up and, and in this case, my brother up and give him the confidence in, in trying to push forward when he didn't have it. Um, and in some cases, vice versa, he would pick me up. But both him and I have very different skills and very different views on life. And I think we balance each other out. So together we're super strong. And I'm definitely like the business wouldn't be where it is if I didn't have my brother there. So, you know, I'm very, very grateful. But a lot of this, I think, comes down to culture and upbringing and, um, and you know, how you view life and, and uh, failure. Wow, that's a, it's a great story. Uh, and I know that there's more depth to some of these uh, narratives and we could probably go on for, for days on end. But I like to always ask a, one question that's completely unrelated to what we've been speaking about at the end. And we see a lot of change going on in the world today. We see a lot of fear, we see a lot of populism, we see a lot of, um, you know, uh, the, the rise of the ecological warfare where, you know, you have people really concerned that the planet's already a tipping point. Um, we talked earlier about things like burning of inventory and how decisions aren't always, capitalist decisions aren't always in line with maybe humanity. What do you think we'll look back on 50 years from now that is currently common commonplace and think how did we let that happen it's a really interesting question because you know these these types of conversations we all have and we all and we all speak about you know how messed up certain situations are and you know for example brexit i think is a really good example in that you know there is a probably a 50-50 split of people right now that, you know, still believe that Brexit was the right thing to do. And, you know, there are, there's another half that would argue the, the opposite. And, you know, without giving my political stance on all of this, um, you know, I try to, in this case, be balanced. And I think we will look back in time 
on on this situation. And perhaps, you know, maybe, just maybe, you know, in 50 years, it, everything will, will actually be in our favour. The problem with, with the, the, this vote and the situation that we're in is that it will take us probably about 20 years to see any improvement. So for any of us to really see um, any real positive shift in, in a lot of what we were trying to do before, you know, property developers, people who, you know, the, 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 the mothers and, and fathers who would buy a property to rent out and have some additional income. And, and, you know, a lot of people that voted out who thought that their lives would be better off seem to be now losing their jobs. So I don't see there being a, you know, a, a short term improvement in this. Um, you know, there's a, 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 again, so much change happening in the world. So you had America as being the most powerful country uh, and and state in, in in the whole of the world, and with you know recent political decisions and and with with you know the the country's current lead, my honest opinion is that America won't be the most powerful place in the world very soon. I think that you will have other countries like India, like China, that will that will take over, and in fifty years we will look back and we will be like, how did England? And the UK, which was at one point the most powerful empire in the world, and America, which was the most powerful state in the world, you know, in in sort of the late, you know, twenty teens, uh, how and how did in fifty years did they both just diabolically change that position and allow, you know, for other economies to to scale at the rate that they've done? And you know, I don't think we realise how bad. The situation is currently uh, because we're, we're living it and so we don't really understand the damage that's being created uh, long term and you know in time I think there will be a lot of people wishing that certain decisions hadn't been made but you know we have to just live by what the consensus gives and unfortunately it is what it is um, I've, I'm way past the point of uh, even listening to anything about Brexit so I think we are <laughs> well thanks for joining us and thanks for sharing your story thank you for having me really enjoyed it Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.